You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. to read this morning, so I won't ask you to stand, but if you have a Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 3, and we're going to read the whole chapter. Oh, if you want to stand, go ahead. It's a warning passage. It's probably good for us to stand for this. (coughs) Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God." Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is God's word. Please be seated. God, let all of us who have ears hear what the Spirit says to the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, I saw a photograph of a political protest, and at this protest, a fellow was holding up a sign which read, There is no hate like Christian love. That sentiment is common today, that Christianity is hateful, because our culture defines love as unconditional affirmation. Approving of other people no matter what they do. But that's a lie. And Christ tells us the truth. We should not be affirmed in all of our choices because often our choices are terrible and ruinous. We sin against God, which leads to destruction 
and death. And when we are mired in sin, we don't need affirmation, we need confrontation. If your friend was about to drive drunk, you wouldn't approve, right? You'd intervene. You'd warn, because you know how dangerous that is. Friends, sin is more dangerous than drunk driving. Sin leads to eternal condemnation in hell. So it's not good to affirm someone in their sinful choices, which are leading them to eternal catastrophe. That's not loving, because love isn't unconditional approval. Love is pursuing somebody else's good. So love at times requires us to warn when we see someone doing something dangerous. And today in the book of Hebrews, our, issue, our, our author is going to issue a warning that his audience needed to hear, which I think will challenge us as well. And that's what we'll see today in Hebrews chapter 3 as we consider two points. First, Jesus is better than Moses. And second, as Jesus' followers, we must not be like the people that followed Moses. We begin with our first point, Jesus is better than Moses. Let's remind ourselves of what's going on in Hebrews. Our author's writing to a church of professing Christians, many of whom had become spiritually lazy, which led them to spiritually drift. And they were drifting away from Christ. They weren't interested in having a uniquely Christian profession anymore. They were increasingly blending into Judaism. And our author is writing to these folks, urging them to stop this drift, to remain in the faith and hold fast their confession of Jesus. And he shows why they must do this in a series of theological arguments that prove Jesus is better than everything in Judaism. And in the first two chapters, we've seen the first two arguments. Jesus is better than the Old Testament, and Jesus is better than the angels who transmitted God's law to people. And these arguments led to our author's first pastoral exhortation, the first warning passage in chapter 2, which went like this. God took his Old Testament revelation seriously and severely punished everyone who disobeyed it. Now, if God enforced his lesser revelation that rigorously, how much more severe will the penalty be for disobeying his final word in Jesus? We need to remain obedient to Jesus and not fall away from him. That was chapters 1 and 2. Now we begin a new section, and here our author proves that Jesus is better than Israel's great leaders, Moses and Joshua, which will lead to another warning passage today. But first we begin with some theology as our author compares Jesus to Moses in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now this comparison was crucial for the original audience because they were tempted to leave Jesus for Judaism. And what is at the heart of Judaism? The law that came through Moses. So Moses is the central figure in Judaism. But our author says Jesus is better. So don't leave Jesus for Moses. Don't trade the greater for the lesser. Now, how does our author make this point? Well, he doesn't denigrate Moses. On the contrary, verse 2 says, Moses was faithful in all God's house. God's house speaks of God's people. And Moses was part of God's Old Testament people. He was an Israelite. 
And God called Moses and gave him a mission. Exodus 3.10, he said, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. At that time, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And God sent Moses to demand their freedom. And Moses proved to be a faithful servant to the Lord. He stood up to Pharaoh. He led the Israelites out. He faithfully gave them God's law and demanded they obey it. And when they didn't, he rebuked them and he interceded for them. Now, usually intercession was the job of the priest. And Moses' brother Aaron was Israel's high priest. But when things got really bad, it was Moses who prayed for Israel to avert God's fury. We see this when Israel rejected the Lord to worship the golden calf in Exodus 32. And after Israel rejected God's promised land in Numbers 14, both times God said, that's it, I'm going to wipe them out and start over with you, Moses. And Moses begged for mercy and God relented. So Moses was faithful. He faithfully represented God to Israel and Israel to God. And God honored Moses. Numbers 12, verse 6, God says, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Hebrews 3 quotes these words. And they say that Moses was uniquely honored. Moses saw visibly the back of God's glory in Exodus 34. Moses spoke to God directly. In that, he stands unique among all the leaders of Israel. But despite all that, notice that God calls Moses my servant. Now, it's a great thing to be God's servant. But as great as Moses was, our author says in Hebrews 3, Jesus is better. And that's true for four reasons. Number one, Jesus is not merely God's servant. He is God's son. Look at Hebrews 3, 5. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. But verse 6 says, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses was part of God's household. Jesus is over God's household because of who he is. And this points us back to the great truths of chapter 1, that Jesus shares the divine nature with the Father. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. And Jesus, who is fully God, also became fully human. And He died on the cross for our sins, and He rose from the dead. And Hebrews 1.3 says, After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high where he reigns as Lord. And one day he will return to this earth, judge the living and the dead, bring in the new creation, and be, as Hebrews 1 says, the heir of all things. None of that can be said about Moses. Jesus is better. Number two, Moses anticipated Jesus. Hebrews 3.5 says, Moses testified to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses prophesied Jesus coming in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, where he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Moses said another authoritative figure would come from God and proclaim his word. And who's he talking about? It's Jesus. Moses foreshadowed Jesus coming. So Jesus is better. He's the ultimate one. 
Number three, Jesus is God's ultimate apostle and high priest. Look at verse one. We read, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. They might say, well, it's really weird. Jesus is called an apostle. I've never heard that before. This is unique in every early Christian writing. This is the only place where Jesus is called an apostle. Usually that term refers to the disciples who were sent out to preach the gospel, right? But this word apostle just means one who is sent. And Jesus was sent by God, just like Moses. God sent Moses to Egypt to deliver his people from slavery. God sent Jesus into this world to deliver his people from a greater slavery, slavery to sin and death. And Jesus said in Luke 4.43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. I was sent for this purpose. Jesus was sent by the Father to establish and proclaim the gospel, which he explains in Mark 10. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And Jesus tells us what to do with that in Mark 1.15, when he says, repent and believe the gospel. See, Jesus came to this world to die for our sins. That's how he sets us free. And we receive his salvation by God's grace alone, through repentant faith alone in him. That means we've got to turn away from our sins, believing that Jesus is who he said he was, God in the flesh believing that his death and resurrection alone can bring us to the Father. Friends, that is a greater deliverance than anything Moses achieved. And Jesus did this with perfect faithfulness. And in addition to being this one whom God sent, Jesus is also a greater priest who offers a better intercession for us. Jesus' priesthood is a big theme in this book. It was just introduced in chapter 2, verse 17 which says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Jesus took on humanity to be our priest, to, to faithfully offer himself as the sacrifice for our sin. And we saw around Christmas it was also that he might suffer hardship so that he can stand as an ever-present help for us in our times of trouble. He is our faithful priest. And Jesus is better and being a priest than Moses, because chapter 4 tells us Jesus without sin. Moses wasn't. And Jesus lives forever. So Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. See, Jesus is better in His priesthood than anything Moses did for Israel. So again, Jesus is better. Finally, number four, Jesus is the builder of God's house. Look at Hebrews 3.3. 3. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Who do we value more, the artist or the artwork? The builder or the house? Well, God made the cosmos, and Jesus is God. He's the builder of everything. So he's entitled to the greatest glory. Particularly, Jesus is the builder of the house in which Moses served, the household of God's people. So while Moses was great, Jesus is greater because he is the foundation of everything God is doing to save man. The point is clear. The original audience must not turn away from Jesus for Judaism because Jesus is better. 
And it's nonsense to turn away from the superior for the inferior, from the perfect for the partial. So instead of drifting away from Jesus, what should these original readers do instead? Verse 1 says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. The original audience may have been drifting, but they still profess Christ. And our author takes them at their word. So he calls them holy brothers. Because chapter 2 tells us Jesus died to sanctify a people, to set us apart as his holy ones. And it says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers because he became human like us and died to bring us into his family. And he has given us a heavenly calling, a summons to participate in the new creation with him. That's who believers are, and that's who the original audience claimed to be. So they needed to stop drifting from Jesus and instead pay more attention to him because he is God's final word to humanity. Because all of the Old Testament points to him. And without him, it's all inert and meaningless. So retreating to Judaism doesn't make any sense. We need to heed Jesus. The last verse in this section makes the same point. Look at verse 6. He says, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Who is the household of God? Well, the Old Testament, God's revelation ran through Israel. You wanted to hear God's saving word, that's where you had to go. But today it's in Jesus. Belonging to God now means you have faith in Jesus. That's who God's people are today, believers. And so the application is straightforward, friends. If you want to belong to God, you need to trust in Jesus. Because He's the only way of salvation. In John 14, 6, He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. If you want to be saved, if you want forgiveness for your sins, you cannot find it in Moses, Judaism, or any other religion or philosophy or good work. Jesus' death and resurrection are it. And friends, we've all rebelled against God. We all deserve God's unending wrath. The only way to survive God's judgment is to repentantly entrust ourselves to Jesus, to cast ourselves on the mercy of Christ by turning away from our old lives. So I implore you, friend, today, turn to Jesus and be saved. But if you're already a believer, we need to know the second application here is that we need to hold fast our confession. Don't claim Christ and then just drift away from Him like the original audience did. Today, where is your attention? Where is your hope? For many people today, it's politics. They think, well, if my favorite candidate gets elected, that's going to solve everything. Really? Or we trust in our personal finances, or our job, or our education, or our winning personality, thinking, hey, this is a firm foundation for my future. And we invest ourselves more and more into these things. But friends, when you clutch the things of this world more tightly, you are holding on to Jesus less firmly. And what defines participation in God's family in the end, his household, is holding firmly to Jesus. So we must pay more attention to him. We need to read his word and pray and think about those things that pertain to him more and more. And we need to clutch the stuff of this world less and less because this world is passing away. And the only thing that's going to matter in 10 billion years is having a real confidence in Jesus. 
And that's now what we see in our second point, which is that as Jesus' followers, we must not be like the people who followed Moses, who fell away from the Lord and failed to inherit God's rest. Verse 6 says we must hold fast our confidence. Now we learn why as we come to the second warning passage in this book, which is built on a biblical example which has to do with Moses. Moses was God's faithful servant, but the people who followed Moses out of Egypt, the Exodus generation, were not faithful to the Lord. And to introduce this negative example, our author quotes from Psalm 95, which was written centuries after Moses died. And Psalm 95 was written partly to warn the Israelites who heard it by reminding them of their ancestors in the Exodus generation, saying, remember those guys? Remember their rebellion? Remember what happened to them? Don't be like them. And that's the same point our author wants to make here. Don't be like the Exodus generation. They say, okay, well, what did they do? Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11 tell us, and our author quotes these verses, beginning in Hebrews 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. If you're here next week, God willing, you're going to hear these words again and again because they are quoted throughout chapters 3 and 4. Now, what do these words mean? How did the Exodus generation sin? Well, our author makes it really easy for us to understand. He lays it out beginning in verse 15 of our chapter. As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Three things characterized the wilderness generation. Number one, they heard God's voice. And that's a great thing, to hear God's word. But hearing isn't enough. How should we respond to it? Isaiah 66, 2, God says, These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. God honors those who come to his word with contrition about sin and humility and a spirit of obedience. But that's not how the Exodus generation responded to God's word. And that's characteristic number two. They hardened their hearts. They grew increasingly resistant and dead to God's word. And this led to characteristic number three, rebellion open, defiant opposition to God's rule. Now, that's how the story of the Exodus generation ends. But that's not how it began. Maybe you remember the story. The Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt for centuries. And what happened? Well, God called Moses and said in Exodus 3, 6, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God said he was going to save his people from slavery, and he was going to send Moses to do that. 
And not only was God going to deliver Israel from Egypt, He was going to bring them somewhere else to that good land, that place of peace and rest. And what happened? Moses and Aaron brought God's message to the Israelites. Exodus 4.29 Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed, and they bowed their heads and worshipped. Man, that sounds like a great start, doesn't it? The Israelites hear God's word, and at first we're told they believed. But quickly they started grumbling. Yet despite their grumblings, God was kind and faithful, and He brought the plagues upon Egypt. He turned the Nile to blood, and the infestations of frogs and gnats and flies and locusts and the plague of boils. And the livestock died. Not the livestock of Israel, mind you, but only the livestock of Egypt. And God dropped fiery hail upon the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. Then supernatural darkness fell upon Egypt for three days. But the Israelites enjoyed sunshine. And God showed His mighty power in this. He showed where he stood. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not let the slaves go. And so the last plague fell. And death came to the firstborn of every house in Egypt. But God told the Israelites in Exodus 12 to take a lamb without blemish and kill it and take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And everyone covered by the blood of the Lamb would be spared. And the Israelites believed. They obeyed. And they were spared. And Pharaoh let them go. And we read in Exodus 13, 21, that the Lord went before them in the day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. But when God led them to the edge of the Red Sea, Pharaoh, thinking they were trapped along the coast, sent out his army to massacre the freed slaves. And as the Israelites saw the armies of Pharaoh, what did they do? Did they say, well, God's shown us his great power, and he's been for us all this time. We can trust him. Is that what they said? Nope. In one moment, all God had done for them was forgotten. And instead, they cried out in unbelief. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Some amazing words of unbelief. Despite the plagues and the pillar of fire, they didn't believe God was with them. Exodus 14, 13, and Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Israelites crossed the Red Sea while God held it at bay. And friends, that would take faith to step into that seabed and walk across, seeing the walls of water. And in fact, the Israelites crossing the Red Sea is recorded in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11 that records the great deeds of faith of God's people. Hebrews 11.29 says, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. 
But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. So when we consider the Exodus generation, we see a great start. These people had one of the most amazing, visible, tangible experiences of God. In the words of Hebrews 6, they had been enlightened. They had tasted the heavenly gift. They had tasted the goodness of the word of God. They had tasted the powers of the age to come. They knew in a real way God's reality and power. And while at times they had lapsed into ridiculous unbelief, despite all God had done for them, the Bible says in crossing the Red Sea they were marked by great faith. These folks seemed to believe. They had a great start. Just like many people today, right? Many seem to believe. Many seem to have a great start. But friends, what matters isn't how we start, it's how we finish. And this generation that initially believed is the very same group, Hebrews 3 tells us, supremely offended God. Because while they initially listened to God's word, they did not persist in having the right heart attitude towards it. They stopped trembling before God's word with humility. They became like Pharaoh and hardened their hearts. And so on the road between Egypt and the promised land, ten times they rebelled against God before the parting of the Red Sea. And then in Exodus 15, when they became thirsty and grumbled against God, who miraculously provided. And in Exodus 16, when they hungered in the desert, and God gave them manna, bread from heaven. And then later in Exodus 16, when they doubted that God would faithfully give the manna he had promised, so they hoarded it. And again in Exodus 16, when they gathered manna on the Sabbath. And then in Exodus 17, they rebelled against the Lord and Moses, saying they wanted to go back to Egypt because they were thirsty, even though God had just delivered them from thirst. They hadn't learned anything from God's provision. And God gave them water from the rock. And this is the place Moses named Meribah and Massah, the locations named in Psalm 95, which Hebrews 3 has translated from the Hebrew as rebellion and testing. But that wasn't the end of it. Because after they came to Sinai, they rebelled again. They rejected God and worshipped the golden calf. And then again in Numbers 11, they grumbled against God because their journey was tough. And then again in Numbers 11, they rebelled because they were sick of manna. All these rebellions. And yet through it all, God was faithfully and visibly leading them. And then he brought them to the border of that good land he had promised. And what happened? Well, the Israelites sent spies in to see what it was like. Two spies came back and said, we can take it. Ten said, we're not strong enough. And who did the Israelites believe? The ten spies that brought the bad report. Numbers 14, 2 says, And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt and they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. These people rejected God's good land. They slandered God who freed them from slavery that they might enjoy his rest. And they said they'd rather have slavery than salvation. And that was the end of God's patience. So what happened? Hebrews 3 verse 17 says, and with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose bodies fell in the wilderness. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, 
but to those who were disobedient. This summarizes the penalty for the Exodus generation. After they rebelled there at the border, in Numbers 14, 22, God said, Truly as I live, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and the wilderness and yet have put me to the test, these ten times shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. God disqualified them from the promised land. Their, their children would take it, but not them. Because even though they had seen God's power, they didn't believe His promises. Because even though in the beginning they had something that looked like belief, in the end they showed they were really unbelievers by their persistent disobedience. Because they literally chose slavery over salvation. God says in Numbers 14.32, As for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. They, want, they were to wander for 40 years until they all died, except those two spies that brought the good report. We find an apt summary of this tragedy in Hebrews 3.19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The Exodus generation was ultimately unbelieving, so they failed to inherit the promised land. Now maybe you're surprised that God's verdict is that they were unbelieving because they started out so well. And they seemed to believe. But this passage talks about an aspect of real faith that people don't want to talk about much today. Which is that real faith perseveres to the end. You won't hear that much in contemporary Christianity today. How do people talk about faith instead today? Well, many will say faith just means believing in the existence of God. That it's good to believe that God exists. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Mere belief in God is not saving faith. Likewise, many people today seem to believe that faith simply means believing the facts of the gospel. So they'll say, well, Jesus died for me. But they don't seem to really care about what that truth reveals about sin. That it's awful. That it deserves death. That we should forsake it. Or they'll say, Jesus is risen, but they don't live like that's true. They live like this world is all there is. Or they'll say, Jesus is Lord, but they don't live like it. They don't tremble before His word. They just do whatever they want when they want. And yet they say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, I believe, but man, their life says otherwise. Because whatever belief they have is just factual. It's not personal. It doesn't impact their life in a real way. Likewise, many people today seem to believe that faith is all about entering into something, starting well, with no emphasis on how we finish. Isn't that the main thrust of most of what's called evangelism today? The point of the whole thing is to get somebody to pray a prayer, reciting the facts of the gospel back to God and claiming to believe them. And when the person prays this prayer, they're told, well, that's wonderful. Now you're saved. You have eternal security. Go in peace. There are problems with this approach, friends. Number one, it's nowhere in the Bible. Number two, a vast number of people who have prayed the sinner's prayer have wound up falling away from their profession of God which this passage says means they never really believed. So the sinner's prayer is not a reliable conduit to true faith. And number three, this sort of approach cultivates a false notion of faith in the church. Listen to this. If you don't hear anything else I say today, listen to this. Because this whole approach to faith says that saving faith is about grabbing hold of salvation at just one point in time, irrespective of what happens afterwards. 
But friends, the Exodus generation had that kind of faith. They obeyed the Passover. They crossed the Red Sea. They had faith at one point in time. What they lacked was faith that endured. And lacking that, this passage says God considered them to actually be unbelievers, not believers. So friends, we need to adjust our definition of true faith to understand that it is not simply we have just at one point in time. Real faith is something that endures, that characterizes the duration of life. It's not about how we begin. It's about how we endure and how we finish is more important than how we start. And that's what the Exodus generation shows us. They started well. But their lives of disobedience revealed that truly they didn't believe God. And that's exactly what Jude says about them in Jude verse 5. Jesus, who saved a people out of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Well, who got destroyed? The Exodus generation. In the end, they were not believers, so they were destroyed. Now, friends, over the years, how many of us have seen people who likewise started out well, who seemed to believe, who ultimately fell away like the Exodus generation? Oh, they heard God's word at first, but in time they hardened their hearts to it, and in the end they just went off and did their own thing. Our author says that is not real saving faith, because saving faith perseveres to the end. And as our author considered his original audience, he was worried they were in danger of winding up like the Exodus generation. He saw them teetering on the edge of apostasy. Oh, they still professed Christ, but they were drifting away into Judaism. And our author doesn't want his readers to become apostate. He loves them. So he warns them, do not fall away. Persevere in the faith. Now you might be sitting there saying, okay, well, what does this mean for me practically? How do we protect ourselves from becoming like the Exodus generation? Happily, our author gives us the answer very clearly in the rest of the verses of chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The first thing we need to do is perceive that this danger is real and that we should be concerned about it. As we think about the Exodus generation or those friends or family members or church leaders of the past who have fallen away from Christ... It's very easy to say, how stupid, what a terrible decision. Why would you ever do that? But friends, that attitude shows that we are in danger. We would do well to remember Paul's word in 1 Corinthians 10. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The truth is apostasy happens all the time to people just like us who may have felt very secure in their faith who at times may have given evidence of real belief. Think of Judas. He walked with Jesus for years. He performed miracles. He fell away. Or Damas, who was one of Paul's ministry companions for years. He fell away. The right attitude about this is not, it will never happen to me. Isn't that what the disciples said right before they deserted Jesus at Gethsemane? No, friends, a wiser approach says apostasy happens to all kinds of people, many of whom we would never expect. So how do I make sure this doesn't happen to me? That's the attitude we are to have. Because our author tells his readers, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you. Nobody is exempt from his warning. All of us who claim Christ 
need to have awareness that we could wind up in this boat, even you or me. We all need a humble awareness of this danger. And that's what this phrase, take care, means. It's saying, watch yourselves. Beware, because this danger is real. And what's the danger? He says it's having an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, maybe you read that and you say, I'm safe. I know I believe. And I'm not evil. I mean, like Hitler was evil, right? I'm not like that. I'm safe. But hey, friends, before we try to exempt ourselves from this warning that God's word says none of us is exempt from, we'd better think carefully about this passage. What does an evil, unbelieving heart look like? It looks like the Exodus generation. They looked like they believed at times, but they ultimately showed they didn't. And how did they show they didn't? Because they constantly, unrepentantly rebelled against God and the leadership of Moses, the man whom God used to free them from slavery, the man whom God had sent them, the man who interceded for them. Well, friends, earlier we saw we don't relate to God through Moses, but through one greater than Moses. Through Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus is the one who has set us free from slavery to sin and death. Jesus is the one whom God has sent to us. Jesus is our priest who intercedes for us. And more than that, the Christian confession is that Jesus is Lord. He is God in human flesh who has the right to rule over us and tell us how to live. So if what marked out the Exodus generation as having an evil, unbelieving heart was persistent, defiant rebellion towards Moses... What marks us out as having an evil, unbelieving heart is persistent, defiant rebellion against the Lordship of Christ. That is what defines unbelief in this passage. Disobedience. They might not like that. Because when we think about unbelief today, we usually think about doctrinal unbelief, denying the deity of Jesus, denying the resurrection. But it is equally unbelieving to say the right words. Jesus is Lord. Jesus died for my sins. Jesus is risen. And yet live like none of that is true. That's unbelief because it shows no faith in the reality of the things being professed. Now to be clear, we're not saved by obedience. We're saved by God's grace through faith. But real faith produces obedience in us. Not perfectly, but there should be a general trend in our lives that we fear God's word and strive to obey it. 1 John 2, 4 says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Not everyone who says, I'm a Christian, really is. One of the tests is obedience. And Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell and the floods came, but the house did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and beat against the house and it fell and great was its fall. What withstands the judgment that is coming? The life that hears Jesus' words and does them. Luke 6, 46, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? John 15, 14, he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Real faith is marked by obedience. Again, not perfectly. We will sin in this life. But friend, what does the broader course of your life look like? Do you tremble before God's word? Do you desire to obey? Do you see that you're not who you used to be anymore? 
Or when you look at your life, do you see what God saw when he looked at the Exodus generation? In Hebrews 3.10, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. That's the life that doesn't know God, the life of persistent, unrepentant disobedience. That's the life described in Titus 1. Well, they profess to know God, but deny him by their works. So first, beware of a heart of persistent rebellion. Is that you? If it is, beware. Because where does that attitude lead? Well, our author tells us there's just one outcome if it's not checked. It leads you to fall away from the living God. Unrepentant sin left unchecked leads to apostasy. And where does apostasy lead? Well, it fails to inherit God's rest. That's what happened to the Exodus generation, right? They chose slavery rather than salvation and did not inherit the promised land. Well, friends, in the same way, what happens if we choose slavery to sin over salvation? The same thing. We will fail to inherit God's rest. Just like Moses, Jesus is leading his people to rest. And the rest he offers is better than the rest of the promised land. It's the resurrection life of the new creation. I'm going to talk about that next week in chapter 4. Hebrews 4.9 says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by this same sort of disobedience. Friends, we want to inherit eternal life and we won't if we fall away. Hebrews 6 tells us plainly the result of apostasy. Hebrews 6.8, its end is to be burned. That's hell. But real faith that perseveres leads to eternal life. And that's what our author says in Hebrews 3.14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Who inherits God's rest? Who actually has saving faith? Not just those that start well, those who finish well, who hold our confidence firm to the end. That's real faith. Friends, we don't want false faith. The life that just seems to believe. The life that shows it didn't because it falls away. 1 John 2 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Friends, we want to have true faith, and that perseveres to the end. As Hebrews 3, 6 says, We are His house if indeed we hold our confidence. That's the mark of belonging to Christ, remaining in the faith. Now, we said a few weeks ago in chapter 2, the Bible is content to leave us with attention here. Because elsewhere in the Bible, we're told that ultimately it's God who eternally secures his people. It is God who causes our perseverance. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.5 says, Believers are those who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's God who secures us. And yet the Bible still gives us these warnings and says, you guys, watch out, and me, watch out that we don't abandon the faith. There's a tension here. And the Bible is content to leave us in that tension. But since the Bible commands us to watch ourselves so that we persevere, we might wonder how should we do that? And our author gives us one very practical answer in chapter 3, verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How do we guard ourselves? By not fighting the battle on our own. This is something that many American Christians are not comfortable with because our culture is deeply individualistic and because the secular West tells us that spiritual matters belong to our private lives. 
And so the result is that many people are uncomfortable with the biblical idea of Christian community. And we are quick to write it off as being unimportant. We'll say, well, my spiritual life's about me and Jesus. And the community of the local church is an insignificant byproduct. And if something happens in the church I don't like, they're all interchangeable anyway, right? And I kind of want to keep it at arm's length and not let it get involved in my life. Maybe it's nice for people that lack a social life, but I'm, I don't need it. Maybe that's how we think. But what does our author say? Listen to him. He presents us with a clear contrast. Either we are going to let other people into our lives, not just church leaders, but he says one another, fellow believers in the church, so that they exhort you, they encourage you, or warn you. Either that is going to happen, or you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is tricky. It's really good at masking its danger, right? Of saying, hey, I'm fun and safe. And then you get involved with it, and then it says, hey, I'm not really that bad. And God doesn't really mind what you're up to. And it isn't really going to lead you to destruction. Meanwhile, it gets us to be like the Exodus generation, forgetting all that God has done for us in the past and making us doubt his word and his reality. And all of this cumulatively causes us to drift further and further from Christ into apostasy. Sin is so deceitful, and we are so easily deceived. And that's why our author tells us we need other voices in our lives. Because if we are left on our own, we're sitting ducks. But in community, others can point out our blind spots and ask us real questions about how we're doing. And when we talk about this sometimes, I fear that we get this picture of like, you know, other people sitting around with their arms folded, stroking their beards with a judgmental posture towards you. That's not what we're talking about here. The idea is other people should encourage us, urge us on towards the prize, to tell us to keep running the race with endurance. Hebrews 10 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's the idea, friends. We need encouragement towards love and obedience because the days are evil and the time is short. And while we often quote Hebrews 10 as part of our exhortation to regularly attend services, I want you to see Hebrews 3 envision something more than I attended church once a week. Because what does our author say? How often do we need encouragement and exhortation not weekly he says in 313 exhort one another every day as long as it is still called today sin is so deceitful that we need help daily now i'm not saying we need to gather every day corporately and i'm not just saying here that you should read the bible every day although you should or listen to sermons although you should this is talking about actual interaction with other people do you have someone or a group of people in your life who can encourage you spiritually in a real way daily? If you're married to a believer, cultivate spiritual conversations with your spouse. If you have children, talk about spiritual things with them. Give and receive encouragement and exhortation. Do you have friends who are believers? If not, make some. And if you say, where? Look around the room. Maybe look around the room next week when we have more people here. But come to the ladies' and men's events. Make friends. And when you talk with believers, don't let it just be about idle junk. I like sports, but man, that ain't going to grow me. That ain't going to protect me. Man, how many Christian conversations have I heard, even in this church, that just get derailed about politics? 
No, friends, let us talk about our spiritual walk, our disappointments, our frustrations, our struggles, our victories. Let us pray together. Friends, don't try to live the Christian life in isolation. It isn't built for that. And friends, we need to recognize that what our society and what a significant part of the American church has urged on us to maintain a private and individualistic spirituality with minimal value on community is a significant part of the reason why so many have fallen away. Because living life alongside the substantive spiritual conversations and encouragements of fellow believers is one of the most important protections against apostasy according to this passage. So let's get into the nitty-gritty, friends. Do you want friends who have real spiritual conversations? Are you willing to open yourselves up to them? And if not, why? What do you think you're getting by keeping other believers at arm's length? Is it because you're nursing some secret sin? If that's the issue, friend, come into the light and get some friends to help you vanquish it. Don't let it harden your heart and lead you away from the living God. Is it because you don't value what anyone else has to say to you? You think you have lots of wisdom and nobody else does? Be careful. Whatever wisdom is telling you that is part of the deceitfulness of sin. Maybe you think, well, the community just doesn't add anything to my already excellent spiritual life. Well, this passage says it does. So is God's word wrong? And if that's your attitude, you sound a lot like the Exodus generation. Maybe you've been burned in the past and you have trust issues. Man, I've been there. But faith means trust in God. And God tells us to keep trying to cultivate spiritual friendships with fellow believers. Friends, this is the one remedy our author gives us in this passage to the threat of apostasy. And so before this instruction from Almighty God, what is your heart posture? Hardness or obedience? Find relationships with fellow believers where you can exhort and be exhorted so long as it is called today so that we are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin because the stakes are just so high. So to conclude, today, do you hear God's voice in this passage? And what is it saying to you? Do you need to turn from your life of sin and follow Jesus? If so, do it. Do you need to let this passage reshape your understanding of real saving faith? Listen to it. Do you need to realize that a loved one whom you have been content to call a believer so as not to cause controversy in your home is actually lost? According to this passage, evangelize them. Do you need to resist sin that is deceitfully trying to draw you away from Christ or a heart that has just become dead to God's word? Find some friends to encourage you and have real conversations with them. If you hear God's voice today, do not harden your heart. And don't just be a hearer of God's word, be a doer, like James says. And if today's passage stings, Understand that's because God warns us because He loves us. Because these kinds of warnings are part of God's amazing grace to us, which keeps us from falling away and which brings us safely home to the finish line. And so as Hebrews 6 says, may we not be sluggish like the Exodus generation. May we instead be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises.